The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Please pray with me. Great God, you are such a good shepherd. And you do really offer a refuge, a place for us to rest in your goodness. And you are so good to give gifts like the Apostle Peter to your church, to give gifts like your word, that it would have its effect on us. And we want to pray right now that it would. Would you rebuild the broken down places, rebuild the broken walls, and restore us? Would you confront us and correct us for our good, leading us back to the way everlasting? Would you instruct us and teach us where our thinking is off by your word? Would we be people tethered to your word? And God, would you equip us for good? You desire good to come out of this text, that you'd bless us with us, that we would be a blessing. So we ask for your help. I ask for your help. Would you help me to proclaim it clearly, rightly, and with a humble heart? For God, you oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. And Father, we need you. We need you to help us to lean in eagerly, to test and see if these things are so and to receive them and be changed and transformed by them. Through your spirit, help us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is the last time recently where you've seen something and it made you say, wow, your appreciation has been kindled? That happened to me just a few weeks ago. I was up north And I saw a waterfall for the first time. Now the waterfall has been there. The Lord created it and it's been there for a long time. But most waterfalls up on the North Shore come rushing down in a torrent. But this one did something different. It came rushing down and then somehow, I didn't get up there and look around. There was an observation place, but I didn't see. Somehow it spread out across a large face of rock, 20, 30, 40 feet across And this torrent became something that you could see and spread out. And it it was coming down soft enough that you could get very close. It was beautiful. I went there twice. What have you seen lately or, or who have you interacted with lately where your appreciation has been kindled for them? For me, it happened this week as I observed the shepherding of the Apostle Peter. It was surprising. I saw the ways that he was serving his people and it hit me. He has been with Jesus. It's the same message that comes through in Acts 4 when others were startled by him. He had been with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is a good shepherd. And we see his good shepherding in this text. Let's just look at it together. But first, let me explain Why is it so important that Peter is a good shepherd? Peter is serving a people in a very difficult context. He has just been calling them to suffer with the Savior for the sake of the good of others. Endure hardship. You're being grieved by various trials. Don't retaliate. Don't move back in like kind. Return their rebuke with honorable words and honorable conduct so that 
they might be transformed so that God might use that in their lives. That's a high calling. How do you do that? You shepherd like Jesus. Let's, let's look at this text. We're going to look at it in three different areas, and I'll try to connect it to Jesus' good shepherding. The first section that we're going to look at is in verse 8. And Peter, like the Savior, begins at the heart. This is a call to serve a people, and, and it's wrapping up a major chunk of teaching in the book of 1 Peter. It began, Peter began rooting their people in the mercy of God and their identity in Christ. And then he moved into this major high calling of suffering with the Savior for the sake of others. And this is the wrapping up word. And he begins this wrapping up word with the heart. Jesus did the same thing. He's the one that said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So as Peter was shepherded by the Savior, he seeks to shepherd others with the shepherding of the Savior, beginning at the heart. Then he returns to the high calling to kind of wrap up this section. Very high calling, return a blessing for evil. And he roots it in the gospel. He roots it in the greatest shepherding work of our Savior. And finally, in verses 10 through 12, he does something pretty amazing. Do you know that our God is a God of blessing? He roots it in the blessing. He goes after our motivation. Jesus did that too. His most famous example of that is the Beatitudes. Blessed, happy, truly satisfied and happy, even despite hardship, are those who are, and then he lists all sorts of different things, persecuted and reviled for my sake was one of them. There's a blessing. And so he spends most of his time in this passage from the end of verse 9, 10, 11, and 12 on that blessing. So let's look there together. We'll start with the heart. And the first word of our passage is finally. Now you might think to yourself, oh, this is probably one of those preachers who says in conclusion and then goes on for another 30 minutes. Because if you look down the page, there's another whole half of the book. What he's trying to do is he's trying to sum up what he's already been saying. He's trying to close this teaching section. And so he says, finally, it started back in 211 with this high calling. And just so that you know where we're at, he chose to do three separate careful sections of shepherding for those that would especially struggle with this message. He began talking about those who were under an oppressive government. And he moved on to those who were perhaps facing the worst persecution, those who were slaves, servants, being treated unfairly by their unjust masters. And then as we saw last week, he spoke to wives who were born again to a living hope, and yet their husbands had not. And it was a hard situation because the Savior had not yet won them. And the special tender care for them. Does that remind you of anyone? How often did Jesus take time and individually focus tender shepherding care on those that needed it most? 
He starts with finally to remind us where we're at. And then, after addressing each of those individual groups, he spreads his arms wide and says, all of you. I've been talking individually and you've come along for the ride and been very blessed by it if that wasn't your situation. But now I want to speak to all of you. Those groups and all of you, church, all of you elect exiles, all of, all of you who've been summoned out of darkness and transferred into his marvelous light, all of you. Then read verse, the rest of verse 8 with me. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Our media department is going to help us with something that we maybe don't normally do. We're going to put up a slide with this passage because it is artistically designed by Peter for a purpose. In the original language, this is a great translation, but in the original language, it's only five words. You can do the math, count it up. That's more than five. It's only five words in their adjectives. Do I have any grammarians out there? What's an adjective? An adjective is a word that describes a noun. And so what Peter's doing here is he says, church, be described this way. And this five-fold description is to be true of you. If you're taking notes or if you're at home watching, consider writing the passage out this way or going back later because what Peter wants to do and what he's done in my heart this week is he's fixed my attention on it, riveted it into my mind so that it would keep coming up that the Spirit would be able to prompt me and say, hey, Remember, this is your description. Let me gently lead you in that direction. You need to seek help from me. Repent. Internally, you are not this way, and your actions flow out of this. So look at this with me. Five stunning adjectives. Notice how they're arranged. The first and the last fit together. What's the theme? It's the mind. How we think about things is critical. He begins with unity of mind. It's literally one-mindedness. It can be defined by, it was by a really helpful resource for me, as thoughts traveling the same path. It's not some robotic reality where we're all just parroting the same thing. But in our own unique personalities, we're moving in the same direction, the direction of God's word. And this is coupled at the end with a humble mind. This is not exalted thinking like, well, I have arrived and you have not. This is realizing that even being people who understand the truth of God's word, that as well is by the mercy of God. It's a humble mind. Now, I need to pause here because this is so hard in our day. So hard. It seems like the perfect storm of COVID and everything else has really made unity of mind and humble minds very difficult. In fact, the spirit of our age is, if you disagree with me, you are my enemy. And that is not what Peter has in mind here. He also does not have the spirit of this age, the worldview of intersectionality, that says, well, let's compare lists where if I'm oppressed more than you, then you must follow me in my truth and you need to be silent. That is not a pathway to unity. This is not celebrate my way even if it clashes with yours. 
This is a group of people being tethered to the truth of God's word. Where do I see that in the text? Well, this is a call to the whole church, all of you. And there was another call. You can flip back and look in chapter 2, verses 2, 2, verse 2, and see this. It has to fit with Peter's call for us to long for or crave the pure spiritual milk. What's the pure spiritual milk? The word of God. That by it you may grow up into your salvation. Peter's eager that the church would have unity of mind as they put themselves under God's word. And that that truth would refine them. That he would be the great God of power. And we would place ourselves under him. Unity of mind. Who is it that you can bring to mind that you're, you're struggling to be on the same path? Is God giving you the desire? Do you need to seek him for the motivation to humble yourself and to strive with them towards the truth? I think this is primarily moving towards believers. But we can pray for and long for unbelievers as well in this. Moving on to the next inner section, it says this. Sympathy is the second one followed by a tender heart, which is the fourth What do those deal with? Our affections. Oftentimes when we disagree with people, our affections are the next thing to follow. Well, I'm not sure I like them anymore. I found out what they think about that. No. We're supposed to pray for a tender heart. Help me to keep leaning into them. To feel with them. To have a tender heart towards them. Do you need to ask the Lord to give you grace for a tender heart with someone Inside or outside your faith community? And notice the center section, brotherly love. You are ready. You're smart enough to know how these fit together. If I'm struggling to agree with you and my heart is growing cold towards you, I'm not going to pray for you, which would be a wonderful act of love. I'm not going to move towards you in care and acts of love. These all fit together. And Peter wants to start with the internal inside. Because as this oppressed group of people that are being grieved by various trials are facing that and seeking to endure, it can easily turn one against the other. Many of us saw that in social isolation in the last few months. Easily turn one against the other. We need to watch out for that in the truth. Peter wants to fix these words and this verse into our minds so that the Spirit would keep prompting us back to that. And I would encourage you right now, pray. Pray Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Put me back onto the path of your word in these three areas and invite the Spirit to keep reminding you about them. Maybe you want to write it out this way and stick it on your mirror. I think God has good for us. We need this. We need this as a church. We need this as a culture. We need this as believers so that we can be blessed and be a blessing to others. In verse 9, look back at the text with me. In verse 9, he reminds them of this high calling. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. He organizes this really well. He tells us what we should avoid and what we should do. But just knowing that does not mean that this is not extremely difficult. So what does this look like? Let me just tell you a story. 
Many years ago, I was working with some high school students in Chicago. And we were working at a community center. I don't even remember what I was doing, but I know that some people were outside cleaning up the gardens and doing things like that. And the reason that I remember that is because some of the neighborhood children picked up rocks and started throwing them at our students. And I, I may not remember it correctly or perfectly, but I think they were also hurling words at them as well. So these students talked with the other leaders and they came to me and we tried to figure out, well, what are we going to do? So we figured out where they lived. We went to their house and we knocked on their door. And when they opened the door, they were scared. But that wasn't our intention. Let me fill in a few more details in between that part of the story. By God's kindness, I had recently been in a passage like this where Jesus says, love your enemies as yourself and, and return good for blessing. And so we had an opportunity. We had to figure out what are we going to do with this? We had to be creative. See, it's one thing to just grin and bear it and be like, this neighborhood's really bad. It's a whole nother thing to lean in and bless others in the face of this is a mild case of it, but it's an evil thing to throw rocks at people. And it's reviling to call them bad names. How are we going to bless them? When they opened the door and looked at us with scared eyes, we handed them popsicles. We'd gone to a local, local grocery store and that was the creativity that the Lord had given us to bless them, to return rocks for popsicles. What words are coming at you? What actions that could fit into the bucket called evil are happening to you? How would the Lord give you grace and creativity to return a blessing for evil? That's a difficult thing. And let me just put a quick shepherding parenthesis in here. Some of you are receiving much more reviling and oppression uh, way beyond that example. And there's been hard things in my life as well. There's been hard things where I have had to go to others just to seek wisdom in how do I even return a blessing for evil? And you might need that too. We're not isolated people. We were meant to be together. We were meant to function in the body and to sharpen one another and help one another. So you might need help. You may also need help from the church leaders or authorities if the evil that is being done to you is of a very severe nature. Well, Peter calls us after returning to that very high calling. He gives us some reasons. And the first is, to this you have been called. I was out of town a couple weeks ago, but this week I watched Pastor Stephen's message on this text. This very much is pointing back to chapter 2, verses 21 and the surrounding verses. I'd encourage you to go back there and learn more. But let me just remind you and point out what this calling is. First, Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, said to his people, bless those who curse you. So it was a calling from the Savior. But even more, Jesus on earth obeyed that command perfectly. And he left us an example to follow in his steps. There were no more evil, reviling words than those that were spoken to Jesus as he moved towards the cross, the lies, the deceptions. Get down from that cross if you're the son of God. 
No more evil words. And actions to God incarnate in the flesh? No more evil actions. And yet what did Jesus do? He returned a blessing. Father, forgive them. That was their greatest need. And he continued to entrust himself, the words, all the circumstances to the one who judges justly. He died and provided a fountain of blessing for all who would trust in him. And many did at Peter's sermon just a few weeks later. So Jesus left us an example to follow in his steps. But I think Peter has even more here when he uses the word calling. This whole book keeps coming back to this theme of elect exiles. You were called out. You were people that used to be in darkness. But now you've been moved into this marvelous light and you've been freed from being slaves to sin to be able to live in righteousness. In chapter 2, verses 24, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Live to righteousness. Now, this is a high calling. I acknowledge it. And there may be many other questions. But thankfully, we're only halfway through this letter and there's much more to come. Next week, we talk about, well, what do I do with the fears in this situation? That's coming next. But for now, Peter wants to focus his primary attention on motivating us with a blessing. Look at the second reason at the end of verse 9. That you may obtain a blessing. This phrase, that you may obtain a blessing, is a direct contradiction to the lie that God is a killjoy. He's not a killjoy. God is out for your blessing. We see that throughout Scripture, and that's one of the greatest messages that we get to revel in at Bethlehem. God is pursuing your joy, and he has given the greatest gift to fulfill your joy, Jesus Christ. Come in and enjoy him with us. That may be a brand new truth for you, those that are watching at home or those that are here. Or you may have been at Bethlehem for a long time and you need to dust that off and say, God, help me. Revive that truth in me again. That Jesus is my greatest joy. Plunge me into that. Help me with that. So Peter here moves us towards our blessing. He wants us to know that there is something better. Because everything within us, when people speak harsh words to us, and I'll even say, when I'm corrected, I want to come back with my words. I want to regain control of the situation. I want to one-up them. That's our flesh. We're supposed to abstain from the passions of the flesh and do something different. And how do we do that? Motivated by a superior promise. And there are superior promises here. But there's another reason that Peter is such a good shepherd. He knows the truth of Galatians 3.5. How does God work miracles among us? By hearing with faith. So he grounds this by quoting two and a half verses. Maybe even more. You can look it up in Psalm 34. Several verses of God's word. The longest quote in this whole book from the Old Testament. He's done it several times and he does it here again. Because as we press into God's word, something miraculous happens in us. Our faith is stirred up. We believe this great God and we move forward in obedience. That is how God works miracles among us. So let's look at this passage for that very reason. 
It's sweet that we've been singing about and reading through this wider passage. This is a psalm of David, and I'll explain the context in just a second, but it's a psalm of David where he calls people, worship God with me. He has delivered me. David was under a great amount of oppression, and he says, come, rejoice in the Lord with me. He blesses those who take refuge in him. I am one. Believe me. Look at my life story. See it. He spends the first half singing a worship song, and then he spends the second half, right about where Peter starts, giving us a song of instruction. He starts it with these words. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So he wants to teach us the fear of the Lord. I don't know if your heart trembled during Soren's testimony when he shared his favorite verse about God and his eyes. That was a beautiful orchestration by the Lord to record that video a few days ago and fit it right in here to this service because that's what this text is talking about. And we should tremble. We should tremble before this great God. Tremble at the blessing and tremble at what the last phrase says. Let me just quickly set the situation because does David have any right to do this? Look at, look at how he starts. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Well, I'm not a king. I'm not sitting on some couch eating grapes. What do you mean desire good days? Desires to love life and see good days. Well, David was not yet king when this psalm was penned. In fact, life was so bad, he fled to the enemy. And when he got there, it was awful. It's kind of like being chased by a mountain lion. You go hide in a cave, realize there's a bear in there, and then it's chasing after you. You have to be delivered from the bear, and you praise the Lord, but the mountain lion is still after you. That's what's going on in David's life. King Saul, the one who was meant to represent God for Israel, was after him. He wanted to kill him. He said so. He came after him with his spear. He sent his people to go attack him and take his life. And in fact, when the report came back from them, well, David's sick and in his bed, Saul said, bring him to me in his bed that I may kill him. This is the king of Israel. The army is at his disposal. This is a scary place. What did he do? He fled to the Philistines. Well, that's a big deal too because it must have been really bad. Even though we tried to reconcile, he talked to the king's son and said, what have I done? Help me understand this. He fled to the Philistines, and he not only fled to the Philistines, he fled to Gath. Why is that a big deal? Well, the songs in Israel was that David has killed his ten thousands, and many of those were Philistines. So that's not friendly territory. And Gath, that's the hometown of Goliath. What happened to him with David? Yikes. So when he shows up there, he's in front of the king, and the, the, he's realizing, this is not a good place. Lord, deliver me. So if anybody can speak to unjust oppression, words against, David is well qualified. So he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, he probably means, good shepherd, lead me beside still waters and restore my soul because I am grieved by these various trials. And you may be as well. You may be asking, Lord, lead me beside still waters. Well, what's the path to that? It's not seeking to take control of the situation in our own actions or words. It's this. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Do you notice how perfectly that fits with what has just been 
written to us by Peter, it's like they're on the same page. It's like the Bible is a unified book. It is. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. This is all in the context of pursuing a blessing. This is pursuing a blessing. And he underlines it in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. If you look at Psalm 34, David is rejoicing so much in the goodness of God that he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's like I can lick the air and taste the goodness of God. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. God sees me. God knows. God understands this struggle that I'm going in. He hears the words and he hears my cry to him about these words. As I move and seek his grace to move forward in this, I can know that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to his prayer. There is a greater superior blessing. Lean into that. But God's warnings do the same thing. He closes this quotation. Peter closes this quotation with David's words. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We have to remember this was written to people in a different culture. This was written first and foremost to Israelites, quoted to Gentiles who are now God's people. But the face of the Lord was a very important thing to the Israelites. In fact, God gave them a blessing just as they were to head out to be given their promised land. He gave them a blessing and it talked a lot about his face. About him lifting his countenance upon them and lifting up his face upon them. So when he says this, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, I think he's primarily seeking to serve believers. Those who are his people and saying, don't go there. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Remember, David is teaching us the fear of the Lord. Do you fear the Lord? Do you know who this God is? For those he wants to bless, he is the covenant God of steadfast love and mercy. And for those whom he sets his face against, or as chapter 5, verse 5 says, whom he opposes, speaking to the proud, he's the God of angel armies, not to be trifled with. So where is this all going? Is this meant to be used, this final phrase meant to be used by the believer to say, well, I'm just going to endure this and I'm going to seek God's help, but at least they're going to get theirs because the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I don't think that's exactly what he's focusing on. Well, where do you see that in the text? I see that in the text as to where Peter has decided to stop quoting Psalm 34. I think what Peter desires and what God desires for you and for those who are sending reviling words your way or doing evil actions your way is that this would be a win-win situation. You obey God in his strength and in his power and he blesses you. And they receive a blessing. 
They're taken aback, stunned. They don't know something supernatural is going on here. And God pricks their heart and points them to himself. Let me help you see how Peter quotes this. You can look at your Bible here in this passage and says, but the Lord, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He stops there and puts a period, but it's actually mid-verse of a poem. And there's another half of that line, which says in Psalm 34, 16, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now that is true. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But now is the day of mercy, and Peter doesn't go there yet. He desires mercy from them, not that they would, their memory would be cut off from the earth. He desires them to be welcomed into the fellowship and be praising God with him at his day of visitation. You see, this message is also for the enemies among us. There's mercy. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Turn, repent, admit that you're an enemy to the Lord. Admit that you've spoken words that you cannot take back, but they've been reviling. And return. There is mercy. This message is for all. So what do we do with this passage? We let it shepherd us. We use it to shepherd others. We dive further into it to stir up faith to do these absolutely hard, impossible things. We seek the miracle from God that comes from hearing his word. So let's just consider this from a few different groups. Some of you in this place have faced much oppression. And you may need to be encouraged that you, like David, can declare I don't know how he's brought me this far, but he has kept me. I identify with David that I'm under so much duress, and yet my God has been faithful. Rejoice with me, and Lord God, give me more grace. Others of us need to be corrected. We're the enemy. We need to lay down our arms of rebellion, not just towards others, but towards the Lord. And still others of us are in desperate need of help. We may be facing this situation, this very same similar situation. What do we do? We cry out to the Lord for grace. And finally, this passage also applies the principles of it to believers that are facing any sin. Our God is for your good. Do you believe that? He is after your good and your joy. Go to his word and find the superior promises to help you fight sin. This section is about abstaining from passions of the flesh, and there are all sorts of passions of the flesh. And this type of shepherding can be used that way. I'm going to close the service in prayer, and then we're going to sing and continue praying as we sing. You can do that, you know. We're going to continue praying as we sing. Please pray with me. Great God, this is a high and humbling word. Would you help it to have 
your desired effects. Would you be merciful to us? Would you bless us by being able to walk in your way by your perfect sacrifice because you have freed us from your sins to move in that direction? And for those that have not trusted in you, who don't believe that you are out for their good, who believe that you are a killjoy, run after them, woo them to yourself. Thank you so much for your word. We need you. Thank you that you give grace to the humble. Would you bless us by giving us humble hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.